the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Reconciling Religious Dogma, Settled Science, and the Undiscovered Roman Recipe for Concrete. A planetary creeping darkness and a three-headed god collide. Plus part 12 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with P.C. Hodgell, the author of Intricate and Adventurous Fantasy in the Kinserath series. Pat's latest novel is The Sea of Time. She talks with us about the book, the ins and outs of world building, the weird imaginative pathways that in-depth research can lead her down, and all kinds of good stuff. And we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. On the Bain.com page, we have new free fiction and nonfiction. We do this monthly on the 15th, and there is some good stuff up there for you to check out. Our latest free fiction is by Steve White, and it is set in his Jason Thanow time travel series or Thano, and it's set in the era of his new Jason Thano time travel novel, Ghosts of Time. That era is the last days of the American Civil War, when Mosby's raiders were going up against Phil Sheridan's dragoons. It's an excellent story, and Ghosts of Time, on which I was one of the editors, is maybe my favorite of the Jason Thano books yet. For the July nonfiction, we have a science piece by neurobiologist Ted Roberts, Dr. Ted Roberts, the history of science is full of examples of settled conclusions, which must later be modified or even rejected, Dr. Roberts argues. He also looks at some of science's most famous blind alleys and shows why science is a process and not a conclusion. Plus, we have another special short story by the winner of the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Contest for 2014. That story is called Low Ark, and it's by New Zealand writer Sean Monahan. This is good, strong science fiction with a hero who will not give up when faced with the worst the cold equations of natural law can throw at him. Find all of these right now at the Bain.com website, all free. And if you wonder where the old free content on the site goes, you can get it too, still free. It's collected in ebook form at BainEbooks.com. You go to BainEbooks.com and put in search terms free nonfiction and or free short stories. And the collections from this year and years past will pop up, all there for your downloading pleasure. All good stuff, so check them out. I want to welcome PC Hodgel to the podcast. Hello, Pat. Hello. PC Hodgel, Pat, is the author of the Kinserath series. All right, did I say it right, Pat? Yes, you did. All right, of high fantasy novels. Pat is the daughter of two well-regarded artists and also has a rich scholarly background herself. She earned her doctorate at the University of Minnesota with a dissertation on Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, and is a graduate of both Clarion and Milford, the writer's workshops. And she's a retired lecturer from the University of Wisconsin-Oshkosh, where she taught modern British literature and composition. 
Hodgell lives in her family's ancestral 19th century wood-framed house in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where she writes, and if you look at her blog, where she knits. Uh, these are some wonderful, beautiful things from yarn that you make, Pat. <laughs> and Pat's Kinserath series and its prequels have been developing over 30 years or so, I believe. Uh, they began with the novels Godstalk and Dark of the Moon, which are collected in the Bane Omnibus edition, The Godstalker Chronicles and continued in Seeker's Mask, To Ride a Rathorn, Seeker's Bane, Bound in Blood, Honor's Paradox, and latest entry in the series, The Sea of Time, which is now out at booksellers everywhere. The novels have many wonderful characters, but their main focus is on the development of James Talisman, who is a scion of the Kinserath. It's, uh, I guess it's not exactly a family or a tribe, or it's a melding of different castes and even different species, uh, brought together by a somewhat tricky god to oppose a threat to the multiverses. His name is, or its name, or whatever it is, is, is Paramal Darkling. Kind of a beast, kind of a being, kind of a place. If Pat, you can tell me if I have that right. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> it's pretty ambiguous, yeah. <laughs> your world is very complex, and I mean, that's the great thing about it, is that is the world building is just phenomenal. Can you give us an overview of the setting we find in the novels? Uh, where is Rathelion? Who or what is Paramal Darkling? And, and who is, is it Jamefield, Priestbane, Talisman? Is that her first, her full name? Uh, Jamethiel Priestbane. Where's the talisman come from? Is that just the last name she assigns herself? It was something she just picked up in, in Pythastagon and then pretty much dropped. So, Rathelion, what is... This is not the world that the Kinsaras started on, is it? No, it's not. Um, it's a threshold world on the chain of creation, uh, which makes it sort of a link between dimensions. It's round, but it's a lot of it is already swallowed by Paramal Darkling. So the uh, the field in which they're operating is pretty much what's covered by the maps in the, in the books. Um, Paramal Darkling... It's sort of evolved over the years. Um, it's sort of an alternate type of reality where life and death get mixed up. Um, it's not so much evil as alien. It's like a spreading cancer. Uh, the evil comes into it in its effects on other people, uh, primarily the master, who is the former High Lord of the Kenserath, and he's tried to use Paramal Darkling to gain immortality. Uh, whereas Paramal Darkling wants him to become its voice, um, which he really doesn't want to do. Is Paramal Darkling sentient, or is it a place, or is this thing a beast? Not entirely sure. It seems to be sentient, but it's with a, a different type of intelligence. Um, that's why it needs someone like the Master to speak for it, to be an interface between it and... Um, the humans, so to speak, the cancers, the other people. Uh, think of a sort of an intelligent cancer. Yuck. It's the, so the the Kinserath are opposed to this. Can you explain who, who the Kinserath are? Oh, okay. They are, as you said, uh, three different um, species, practically, that come from different threshold worlds. They were bound together by the three-faced god, as you said, to try to stop Paramal Darkling from moving from threshold world to threshold world down the chain of creation. Um, they're composed of the highborn 
at least that's what they call themselves, who are the leaders. Uh, there aren't as many of them. There are a lot more of the Kendar who are basically everything except that isn't the leader. Um, they're also sort of the uh, the model of, of uh, decency in the stories, whereas the Highborn have gotten a little bit off track. Um, the third one are the Arankin, which are sort of like metaphysical giant cats. <laughs> and they were put into the mix because they were supposed to be the judges. They were supposed to be the interface between the god and the rest of the Kenserath. Except they got so fed up with what the um, Highborn were doing that when they got to Rathelion, they just sort of moved off into the wilderness. And uh, as we subsequently find out, they're out there trying to find the four who are the elemental um, beings um, that represent Rathelion itself. The four are the um, are the elementals that are on this world. They're not the Kinsaras, uh god, who is the three, right. three-faced god. Yes, the three-faced gods. Um, god. The uh, four are um, earth, air, fire, and water, and the falling man, the burnt man, the earth wife, and the eaten one. Okay. We run into the earth wife don't we, <laughs> in uh, the Sea of Time? Yes, she sort of pops up all over the place. Yeah. Um, I'm very fond of her. She's uh, essentially a very old um, woman um, who was translated into semi-godhood at the point when the Cancer Temples uh, fired up on Rathelion. Um I sort of like her sense of humor. So these these three casts, the Kinserath, have been retreating from world to world, and I, they call it the long retreat. But now we have born Jame and her brother, uh, Torison. Who are these guys? They're really our main characters uh, in in the series, aren't they? Uh, they and their cousin Kindry, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's see how to explain this. Um, their father was. Jared was Ganth Greylord, and he uh, went into exile after the massacre of the of the women of his family um, into the haunted lands and a keep there. Um, while he was there, uh, Jaredon, who is the master, who is the master of the house, which is this, this almost sentient architecture that's slowly creeping forward along with Caramel Darkling down the chain of creation. Um, as I said, Jaredon betrayed the Kenseraf for immortality. He got it through um, souls that were reaped for him by his sister consort, Jamethiel Dreamweaver, only she was starting to go sort of unstable. She, Anything that touched her just sort of soul just went through her like a sieve. Um, so in order to maintain himself, uh, he decided he would send her to... Uh, the exiled Ganth, and hopefully between them they would have her replacement. Well, lo and behold, they got twins, Jame and her brother Thorison. Um, was a surprise to Ganth and to Jared and both of them. Um, and that's pretty much their origin story. So they're up in the haunted land. Born, they're the child of. of of darkness and light, the children of darkness and light in a way, or or at least uh, a dark principle and a more natural principle. 
to, to some extent, although Gant is kind of creepy in his own way. But, but James has certain built-in uh, powers, if you will, um, because of who she is. Yes. Uh, well, let's see. For one thing, she's got retractile claws, mm. uh, which she's very embarrassed about throughout most of the series. She's, she's finally coming to grips with them. As it were. <laughs> um, she has a tendency towards berserker fits, in which she begins to channel uh, the third face of the three-faced god, which is that which destroys, at which, at which point you don't want to be anywhere near her. Um, she tends to create this catastrophe wherever she is. The, the running gag is that you always find her standing in the rubble looking apologetic. <laughs> She is she is sort of chaos embodied, isn't she? Um, she is. Not that she wants to be, not that she tries to be, but it just sort of happens. <laughs> well, that's what makes her so much fun to follow as a, as a main character. What about the rest of the world, Rathilian? Um, I you know, I think the world building in these novels is just really extraordinary. We have carnivorous horses um or horse-like beings. Uh we have um migrating trees. Uh, carrion eating butterflies. I mean, it, it goes on and on. Um, can you give a sense of how you envision this world? What it what it sort of looks like in your mind as you're as you're writing it? Um, beautiful, changeable, dangerous. Uh, it as you say, it has a pretty mobile landscape. Um, things are constantly shifting position, shifting status. It's, it's, it's as if it's exploding with life, as Paramal Darkling is life and death. Things get bigger and smaller in this world as well, like things can be bigger on the inside than the outside, especially the God's Temples. Mm -hmm. Yes. The ground seems, I mean, the theme throughout the the whole series is, is the way the is earthquakes and, and, and the ground shifting under the character's feet, both literally and, and figuratively. So what a uh, Raythorn, uh, what a Rathorn, um, what do they look like? They're really cool. And what do they eat? <laughs> Answer the last. First, um, virtually anything, up to including small shrubs and occasionally rocks, uh, they really are omnivores. They are something like an armor-plated unicorn. The armor is um, ivory that grows in a sort of mask out of which come the two horns, one on the, one on the nasal, one in the middle of the forehead. Um, then it goes down in plates down the neck and across the stomach. Uh, the, it's extraordinarily tough material. Um, and unfortunately, it keeps growing throughout the Rathorn's lifetime. So if, it, if the Rathorn does not find some way to chip off pieces or to grind pieces off or something, it eventually, and they're, they're potentially immortal, too. So they can end up completely encased in their own armor, buried alive, as it were. Yikes. And yeah. yes, they can be pretty nasty. Yeah. They, it's, it's good to be on their good side, as we find. Right. Even then, it's tricky. Yeah. The What about the, the wandering willows? Um, they're dangerous, too, as well, aren't they? Do they travel in groves, or...? Um, the willow that, the golden willow that shows up most often seems to travel by itself. Uh, I guess it, guess it hasn't settled down yet. <laughs> um, 
It's dangerous, but it only really is dangerous if you attack it or you interfere with it. Um, otherwise, it's just mostly trying to get away because willow wood is so valuable uh, that people keep trying to uh, cut it down for lumber. So it's sort of constantly on the run. Now, in Honor's Paradox, the the book before this, we found Jamin's school, the Tintir Academy, um, where I guess uh, the Kinsir soldiers, uh, the Kinsirath soldiers are trained. Uh, she went. She underwent a lot of trials there, and, and it didn't seem like she was going to be able to graduate, but she did. And now she's has she been assigned to this new southern land, Cothafir? Is that is she there officially? Yes. What's she doing there? Well, she's a, she's there as a second year Randon cadet, um, having spent one year at the training college Tentier in the Riverland. Uh, a lot of her classmates uh, and she have been sent down to join the Southern Host, which is the southern branch of the <clears throat> of the uh, Rathilian, uh, sorry, of the Kenserath, uh in the pay of the, the God King of Cossifer. So she's down there sort of going in for some field work, going in for some training with the Host, the Southern Host. Uh... And of course, being James, she gets mixed up in a lot of other things as well. What is the? I mean, you several times, her, James and other characters refer to the fact that she could be in command of the host. She doesn't want to be. Yeah, that's because she's. Um, her brother has declared her his heir, uh, his Lordan, and by tradition, the Kenorth uh, Lordan is supposed to be in command of the Southern Host. Now, it's been a long time since that happened. I mean, Tori was in command of the Southern Host, but at that point they didn't know he was the uh, heir of the, of the Knorth and the next High Lord, as it turns out. Um, so, yeah, it, it, if they were going according to the old politics, she would be in charge, at least in name, but obviously it's not something she wants to do. She spends a lot of time sort of getting out of the day-to-day the, uh, -day mechanics of the host, um, and even of being a cadet. And this is sort of going to come back to bite her in the next book. Yeah, she uh, she sometimes gets off of duty <laughs> when she feels like doing something else. <laughs> On the other hand, she she did she does accompany she's committed to it. I mean, she accompanies her uh, her her group out on this idiotic expedition where she almost gets killed. So, all right, so what are they doing in Cothifer? There, Jame encounters this uh, this sort of exiled old gods who live in a big... There's a city, and then there's an undercity. Um, the cave is just is a wonderful uh, sort of city in itself that's under the regular city. And there's a new god king on the top, and there's all these uh, these old gods who are down, in, down underground, still around. Um, and is that uh, is that correct? Have I summarized that in any way that that sounds right? Yes. Um, the only other major feature of that city is that, uh, like Titastagon, it is has a cancer temple in it. Uh, unfortunately, it's an unstable temple. It was the last one. It wasn't completely finished, 
And as long as it's on, as long as the power is being generated, then the new gods who are on the upper cliff um, are gods. The god king is a god king. Uh, but when it, go, when it goes offline, um, everybody up there becomes mortal again, and uh, there's a lot of civil chaos. Is the fact that the Kinsir, the Kinserath are in this world, that them entering it, did, did that make the possibility of new gods uh, happen? Yes, it did. There's a direct link between the Kinsir temples starting up, um, the sudden arrival, well, not arrival, sort of, the four were sort of precipitated out of that world. They were individuals who then became elementals and had to spend a lot of time figuring out what that meant. Uh, but yes, any any new god is a direct byproduct of the temples. And we meet the uh, the the god king as a as a young boy. Um, in a, it's a flashback, right, with Torson when he first came out here to uh, head up the horde. Uh, yes, so, Tori meets him, and then Jane meets him. Still as a young, thin guy, and I, I won't spill beans on that. But it's it's a sort of question of whether he can be both this this um, slim young man and also the incredibly obese king. And I think weighs something like a thousand pounds. Who are the bad guys here? Why are the Kinsareth military in the employ of, of the god king of Cothifer? Uh Well, Cothifer is a very rich city. Um, it needs protection. Um... Bad guys, I guess you would say, would be the, the Carnids of Urukarn, who have been mixed up in Cothifer's history a couple of times, and as we know from other books, they were involved in a, a massacre of, massacre of um, cancers from the southern host, including Tori got mixed up in that one. So part of bringing him, her down there is so that she can confront through dreams and other information things that, that happened to her brother down there during the time when he was, well, but younger than she is now. And part of the narrative is Jane finding out through uh, through a sort of connection with her brother's past that she's rediscovering what did happen to him. So we have sort of a parallel track uh, narrative going on, right? Yes. Yes, this was supposed to, originally this was going to be a companion book uh, to Godstock in a sense that it would be Tori's origin story as Godstock with James, but there wasn't really enough information there, so I combined them the way I did. So Jame is, um, she's young, but she's she's not the same age as her twin. Can you tell tell us how that happened? <laughs> uh, yes, she's about uh, ten years younger than Tori, and that's because when they were children in the Haunted Lands Keep, uh, her father drove her out. She ended up in Paramal Darkling, where time moves more slowly. And by the time she got back, uh, the gap between herself and her brother was a decade. Which is very confusing to everybody. <laughs> One of the things we learn in the in the Tory parts of this book is that um, his father is is not while he's dead, he isn't really dead. Um, why is Tory so bothered by his his dad? Well, Gantz was, he was pretty much abused as a child by his older brother, Gresham, 
who was his father's favorite. His father was the High Lord. And when Gresham died unexpectedly, Gantz became High Lord. He was very insecure. He used rage to give himself strength. Um, he hated the Shanir because his brother was one. Um, and those are the people of the old power, people who have other talents than the normal cancer and are considered closer to their god as a result. Anyway, he really hated the cancer, not realizing that he himself was one. Um, let's see, when the, mass when the massacre of the Knarth ladies happened, he really went off the edge. He attacked the wrong enemy, went into exile in the Haunted Lands. That's where he met Jamathiel Dreamweaver, had the twins. Um, the reason that he's still haunting his, his son it's partly psychological and partly that um, he tried to bloodbind Tori so that a fragment of him got into Tori's soul image and has been locked in the back of it behind a door, which is also, of course, symbolic of Tori not being able to face his father, not being able yet to face entirely that he also was Shawnir. Um, but... Uh, Dad seems to be behind the door, and he talks through it to Tori, and um, generally makes Tori's life pretty unpleasant. <laughs> kind of drives him. So the the soul image you mentioned, this is a big thing throughout the books. What is that exactly? It's the idea that everybody's soul um, can be visualized in a particular way. Uh, I mean, my soul image would probably be the house that I'm sitting in right now. I grew up here, it's been in the family all this time, um, I identify very strongly with it. So if something's happened to me physically, uh, there would be reciprocal damage to the house in my soul, in the soul image. And a healer like Kendry could go into my soul image as if walking into this house. If he repairs the house, then he repairs me physically. I guess if I got injured, then my podcast would... <laughs> <laughs> started to disintegrate. Maybe it already is. Um, you can't help but getting the sense when reading The Sea of Time that we're we're in a dreamscape, in a way. Um, you have gods walking around, temples that are bigger on the inside than on the outside. Um, and it just feels like we're in a land of archetypes. Do you do that on purpose? Do you draw on any notions about subconscious archetypes like Carl Jung's? What about your historical studies also? Well, um, I was very impressed by Jung when I first discovered him, uh, the things that he was saying struck me as intrinsically true, especially for a creative person. The, uh, the idea that there are these shared images, archetypes, uh, subconscious, that we all dip into, I began to realize that even though I was creating in pretty much of a vacuum, I would suddenly come across something in my reading or, or someplace else and realize, oh, somebody else thought of the same thing before. It's got resonance. It's got roots. Uh, I've tapped into something here that I didn't even know existed. So I've been very much um, encouraged by that sort of sense of being connected to something larger than myself. Uh, and, of course, I don't think anybody sets out to write an archetype. Uh, you start out with almost a job description, say, wizard. Okay. Especially in fantasy, there is so much by way of stereotype where you simply have, say, a wizard that could be transferred from one story to another without any great difference. 
uh, they're not, they don't have any depth. Then you get an archetypal figure, I say a wizard again, and it's not just, okay, here's somebody who can wave a wand and have things happen. This is a person who's got a history. He gets his power from a certain place. He uses it according to certain rules. Uh, and then you start to think about a lot of things, deeper things. How is power used? How does it change people? Um, how do they choose between right and wrong when they don't seem to be held accountable by anybody? Um, so then you get into the archetypal stuff, I think. At least that's my theory. All right, so you're not trying to, to bring this stuff in. How, what is your writing process like? Well, um, in the pure mechanics of it, it's probably not that different from most people. Um, I do take copious notes, have a, a, a writing journal on my laptop, which is usually longer than the novel, where I try to think out the ramifications of various ideas and just sort of sound them out to myself to see if they actually work and then what do they connect to and where can I go from there. Um, I get, you asked before about uh, history, I think. Uh, yes. Yes, I do a lot of research, not only about, say, the Middle Ages, which is sort of the default setting for epic fantasy, um, but you find so many wonderful ideas in the past, just day-by-day -day life. You know, I've done a fair amount of research on you know, agriculture, how does the, and then translated into how does the keep in the riverland actually function, what happens if the crop fails, uh, what could be done in a fantasy sense to, to make sure that it doesn't fail, or, or hunting. I've got a wonderful uh, reference book, um, the hound, the hawk, the hound and the hawk, which lays out all of the details about medieval hunting, and so you get some really wonderful concrete details that you can then morph, as it were. Uh, I'll give you an example of other uses that I have of the research. Um, this is from a previous book. I had to figure out some ways to foreshadow that there was going to be an earthquake. Now, of course, in the modern world, we'd say, all right, they're getting tremors here and there, this this or that machine is working up. can't do that in a fantasy, obviously. What I did was to check in the library, and I found a wonderful book called When the Snakes Wake, which is all about how animals react before a tremor starts. And one of the things that that was an indicator of a coming earthquake in China was that they would have these catfish in big bowls and the catfish would become agitated and they say, oops, you know, we've got, we've got an earthquake coming. Mm. So I've mixed that with um, the walking catfish, which I was familiar with because I was, went to school down in Florida and said, all right, when there's an earthquake coming, walking the catfish get out of the river and head for the hills. <laughs> when the last tremor finishes, they come back. Pretty good indicator, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, crap, there go the catfish. One quote from um, Sir Walter Scott talking about doing research and history and whatnot. Uh, my whole dissertation pretty much, well, it didn't grow out of this one, but this, this sort of typified it. He said, quote, I have buried myself in libraries to extract from the nonsense of ancient days new nonsense of my own. I thought it was a great description of Ivanhoe. <laughs> Ivanhoe is a, is a interesting book. I I love the Waverly novels. 
Ivanhoe's kind of a, a big hot mess of, of wonderfulness. <laughs> it's it's hard to uh, to figure out in the same same way mm-hmm. as the heart of Midlothian or something like that. It's the same book everybody wants to do over and get it right. <laughs> so if I if I ever get around to it, I have a lot of notes for the fantasy sequel to Ivanhoe. Excellent. I like to tackle someday. I mentioned before that you had these beautiful um, uh, examples of your knitting on your blog, and I can't help but think there's a connection between um, the fact that you do these these intricate, beautiful knitting patterns and the the amazing world building of of these novels. Do you feel a connection between the? Is it a continuum? Yes. Um, I deal with knitting, crocheting, needlework. I've got something akin to 5,000 kinds of yarn, um, which is all over the house at the moment because I'm working on a new project. But, yes, there's something about working with all those colors and those textures and creating the patterns, weaving things in and out. It's a good metaphor for what you do when you're writing, too. So it gives me almost a sort of tactile and visual um, point of reference if I feel that way when I'm writing, then I know the writing's going well. If I'm not feeling that way, I go back to the knitting and try to regain it. <laughs> now, I know you also ride horses. Um, is There's some horse lore in the series. Uh, is Deathhead, Deathhead uh, James sort of uh, bonded uh, Rathon, Rathorn uh, related to any horses you've known? Well, there's a curious thing about horses. Um, when I first started writing this series, I I loved them, but I didn't know much about them. I had ridden a couple of times as a child. That was it. Um, about the time that I was starting on to ride a Rathorn, I figured I'd better get some more practical experience. So I started taking lessons. I bought a Greenbroke um, saddlebred mare, helped train her, um, learned how to ride, fell off a great deal. Uh, and I've been doing it for like 14 years now. But uh, before that, I had James being just a terrible writer because I was a terrible writer. And she still has all of my hesitations. So that's, to me, sort of a running joke, too, that she has this tremendous creature that she is bound to, and yet she falls off all the time. Uh, they have contretemps of various types. Uh, I'd say that um, this head is sort of the condensation of all my, my fears about horses. I mean, they're big, they're strong. Sometimes they can be unpredictable. Sometimes they can even be vicious. So I, I guess it's just sort of pieces from all different horses that I have experienced over the last 14 years. When, so you learned to ride because you were writing these books then? Yes. Well, that and... At that time in my life, um, I really needed to be doing something that was out of the house. Uh, my mother had just plunged into dementia, and she was driving me crazy, too. So having something to go to, like the stable just outside of town, was uh, a mental savior there. <laughs> but yes, definitely the idea was in my mind that I needed to have practical experience, and that's certainly why I bought the horse in the first place. Has knowing how to ride now changed the course of the plot or any of the details of the books? Oh, yes. Yes, you wouldn't have had anything like the amount of, of horsecraft um, in the early books because I didn't know it. 
Um, and of course, the Rathorn and the Winnow here both became important characters in the three Tentier books. So yeah, um, that's a that's a whole new source of inspiration. You've said in other interviews that you have planned this out in in certain sense, uh, but that characters pop up who you didn't expect, such as their uh, Jame and um, and Tori's cousin. How do you um, how do you keep it loose enough to be able to do that, and yet you do know where you're going? Pretty much. Well, I know where I'm going. I don't necessarily know how I'm going to get there. That's the that's the big trick about each novel. Uh, but yes, a number of characters I thought were going to be just nasty villains, um, Gorble, the keener on Lordan, was simply going to be uh, an unpleasant uh, roadblock for James. But when I started writing about him, I realized that gee, it would be a lot more interesting if he were. Um, actually quite competent and actually a fairly decent person underneath this veneer that his house has put on him. So, yeah, I didn't plan him to be anything like that, but then he he flipped, and the whole storyline, sort of parts of it flipped along with him. That's, that's kind of exciting when that happens. Also a little bit unnerving sometimes. <laughs> Well, we have a we have a story now at the Bayon.com website, which is uh, another uh, minor character in the book, but an important one, uh, Wolver Grimley. Can you tell us a little bit about him? He's he's a fascinating character and what he is. Well, he's a wolver, which is my version, my take on a werewolf. Um, wolvers are capable of changing from human semi-human to wolf form very quickly and they don't have to worry about the moon or anything else like that. Um, Grimley is a poet, very bad poet actually. Um, <laughs> if he tries to do the, sort of the affected style that is common and Cosifer, if he simply sings, you know, howls, he can paint whole landscapes with his, with his voice and that's the that's the, the songs of wood in the story. Songs of wastes are the ones that he tried to put together to entertain the king and the other nobles, and they were just terrible because they were false. They weren't true to him. And he runs into Tori, and they become friends. And yeah, actually, he's one of those characters who almost literally popped out of the bushes. I wasn't expecting him. He was just suddenly there. He he is one of Tori's oldest friends and confidants. So I like their I like their dynamics. Yeah, those scenes those scenes where they're they're um, having a back and forth are are, are amusing. They're they're a lot of inter, they're very entertaining. Um, so where we're going to have another uh, we're going to have another Ken Sarath novel because I saw the contract sitting on the desk in there the other day. <laughs> Uh, so where where's the story going? Um, what's what's gonna hit, what's ahead for Jame and Torison? Well, not sure how much I should say without giving spoilers. Um, something happens in Sea of Time that has 
profound um, impact on Tori and subsequently on Jane. And so something some that will have to be worked out in the next book. Uh, Tori's going to sort of lose it for a while for reasons you won't find out until the end of the book. <laughs> you, you said that you're going to have to put Tori through a sort of a bad period, although you really like him and he's not a bad guy. Um, you keep giving hints about this. I guess this is this is what we're about to see. Yes. Uh, this will be the book where everything hits the fan. Uh, well, actually, that will be the one after it, but this one is the one that sort of sets up um, the difficulties that they'll be facing towards the end. The book is The Sea of Time, a novel of the Ken Sarath series by P.C. Hodgell. It's now at booksellers everywhere. Pat, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. You're welcome. And now here is part 12 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation since then more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy. He's the type of active that controls the force of gravity. This is something Jake is good at. After working for J. Edgar Hoover's Bureau of Investigation and getting thrown out of a dirigible for his trouble, Jake is perplexed why he was sent to capture Delilah Jones, a brute who was accused of working with the mob. Now Jake has stirred up the mob by poking around, and a rogue hitman is planning Jake's demise to add a notch to his gun stock. But also interested in Jake are some altogether more impressive actives who may or may not wish him ill. They represent the grim noir society. Jake is about to have a very rude awakening with life and death in the balance. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 12 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Daniel Garrett went straight for the front door while Heinrich went for the side. Fades worked better in the dark. Mouths always preferred the public. There were two gangsters in the low-class lobby. One was sitting in a chair next to the desk, pretending to read the newspaper. The other was acting like he worked there, behind the counter, except he hadn't even bothered to remove his hat. Both of them looked good and stupid. Dan kicked his power up a notch. "'Good evening,' he said, friendly as could be. "'I'm in need of a room.' "'Will all fall go away?' grunted the man at the front desk. His posture told Daniel that he was holding a gun under the table. Dan always did enjoy a challenge. He reached out, his magic telling him the emotional state of the two. They were small-minded and brutal men. The beauty of being a mouth was that the dumber your audience, the easier they were to steer. 
Strong minds were much harder to sway, and they could usually sense the intrusion. Hey, don't I know you guys? You look really familiar. So far so good, so Dan pushed harder. The two men glanced at each other, feeling a sudden deep sense of camaraderie. Oh, yeah, I think I know you, said the one with the paper. We're friends, don't you remember? That one time we all got together? Dan asked, pushing as hard as he could. There was no time for subtlety. He was their buddy, their old pal. His magic was based on lies and coercion, but any moral qualms he'd had about using it had been put to rest once he'd seen the Imperium schools in action. Oh, yeah, said the one behind the counter. I need a favor. Both of them were smiling now. Anything, Bob. What room is Jake Sullivan staying in? The goon flipped open the book and scanned down the page. Tenth floor. Ninth room. Our buddies are up there now to whack him. Good. Good. Thanks a lot. That really helps me. You know what else would help a ton? Both were smiling and nodding. What? Anything for a pal. Dan hesitated. He wasn't as heartless as he'd thought. First he had to know. Are you bad men? I've killed three people for Lenny Torrio, said the first one proudly. The second one snorted. Big deal. I once broke an old lady's hip because she owed Mr. Capone protection money. Then I beat her head in because she got lippy. That would do. Great, guys, just great. Do me a favor, would you? No problem. They both were grinning stupidly. Give me a second to get out of the way. Then I want you to kill each other. A mouth couldn't force someone to do something that they normally wouldn't consider. It didn't work like that. Even someone as strong as Dan could only sway someone down his natural path. All he could do was push what was already there. If he'd asked a decent person to murder a friend, it would simply break the spell. Only a real piece of work would take such a small amount of influence to do something so heinous. Dan wasn't even in the elevator before they started shooting. Heinrich caught the door right before it closed and slipped inside. That didn't take long. Not much loyalty amongst gangsters, I suppose. Tenth floor, please. Amish checked the safety on his Thompson. He wasn't going to screw this up. Brick was the biggest, so he moved up to kick the door. Hoss reached up and unscrewed the hall light, plunging them into shadow. The boys had done this kind of thing before. The Jap just hung back, looking bored. There was a big glass window at each end of the hall, and enough streetlight was coming in that Amish could still see his buddies. This was going to be great. He squeezed the Thompson tight. Do it! Do it! Brick reared back and kicked hard. His considerable weight tore the lock right through the jam, and the door flung open with a bang. Amish leapt through, screaming, turned toward the bed, spotted the lump in the middle of the blankets, and mashed the trigger. He fired from the hip, stitching hot slugs through the bed, the headboard, and the wall. He jerked the foregrip back down and kept ripping the bed, flinging feathers and bits into the air until he'd hammered through the entire fifty-round drum in one continuous smoking burst. Take that, stupid heavy, yeah! 
Amish shouted. That'll learn you up real good. Hoss rushed past him, double-barrel shotgun in hand, grabbed the blankets and yanked them off the bed, revealing nothing but a pile of bullet-riddled pillows and clothing. Hoss started to shout, Where is... But then his chest and head erupted in a shower of red. As a swarm of giant bullets stitched him, Hoss tumbled dead to the floor. The heavy stepped out of the bathroom, shirtless, holding an enormous black cannon to his shoulder. The smoking muzzle swiveled toward the doorway where Brick had appeared, and there was a terrible thunder. Brick disappeared back into the hall, and Amish blinked as something hot and wet splattered him in the face. It took him a second to realize that he had just been hit with part of Brick's skull. The cannon settled on Amish last, and the heavy paused, with a little smile that seemed almost sad. Lenny couldn't even bother to come himself. Amish pushed the release and yanked the drum out of the Thompson, then fumbled at his pocket for a stick mag. The heavy just shook his head, disappointed. Then everything was wrong. Down was now behind him, and Amish screamed as he fell through the door and into the hallway. How? He felt his collarbone snap as he hit the wall. Gravity came back suddenly, and Amish spilled onto the hall carpet. Pain washed through him in waves. The heavy appeared in the doorway, glanced quickly both ways, and saw the Jap. Who oh, are you supposed to be? the heavy asked. The Jap didn't answer. He just opened his big coat and showed his sword. Amish looked back and forth between the two terrifying men and knew that he was about to see one hell of a fight. But the heavy just did his trick with gravity again and now down seemed to be the end of the hallway. The Jap began to fall, but whipped his sword out and jabbed it into the floor, and he was hanging there as Amish tumbled down the carpet past him. The window barely slowed him. Amish opened his eyes inside the shower of glass to see that he was gliding over the street ten stories below. I'm flying! It was the most wonderful thing he'd ever experienced until he reached the end of Sullivan's range, then gravity returned to its normal direction and the street rushed up to meet him. Oh, are you supposed to be? Sullivan asked. The man at the end of the dim hall threw open his coat, revealing the blue-wrapped hilt of a sword. His hand hovered over the handle of the blade, waiting. Jake's curiosity did not run as deep as his apprehension at facing a crazy guy with a giant razor. He spiked, bending gravity's pull to a different angle. The dead body and the cross-eyed reader slid down the floor, but the other drew his sword in a flash as the power hit, took it in two hands, and drove the silver blade deep into flooring. The reader zipped past, hit the window, and took the whole assembly with him into the city. The swordsman hung from the end of the blade, parallel with the carpet dangling, patiently waiting for the spike to subside, watching Sullivan curiously the whole time. The power needed to distort gravity for so long was too much, and Sullivan let go, letting himself fall against the doorway. The swordsman landed on his hands and knees, then took his time getting up. He pulled his blade from the wood, then spun it once quickly through the air before letting it dangle loose in his hand. His fedora had gone out the window with the reader, but other than that he seemed fine. 
I did not realize the Americans had developed their heavies to this extent. I'm big on self-improvement. The man was an Oriental. Sullivan had worked in a few Chinatowns before, and the truck drivers that had driven the first volunteer around France had been Vietnamese, so he had more cultural exposure than a lot of his countrymen. But this man spoke English better than Sullivan did, and had a much nicer suit. Probably almost fifty, but strong and fit. He was remarkably tall compared to the other Asians Sullivan had known, probably just under six feet, and appeared a little too confident. You ain't from around here, are you? I am impressed with your level of mastery, Mr. Sullivan. He gave a very formal bow. It is a great honor to battle one such as you. Sullivan raised the Lewis gun to his shoulder. There's nothing honorable about battle, he replied, pulling the trigger. A short burst of thirty-caliber bullets hit the swordsman square in the chest. Sullivan lowered the machine gun, but the swordsman was still standing. Impossible. A string of thirty-oh-six should have put even the toughest brute on their ass. The swordsman started forward slowly, raising his weapon, both hands on the hilt, blade held rigid next to his head. Sullivan leaned into it this time. When the first heavies started drifting into the first volunteer, they had been put to work as machine gunners. Even the least powerful heavy could carry five times as much weight as a normal. An active heavy could lower the tug of gravity on his weapon, so even a pig like the Lewis MK-3 was handy to run around with. But the less a gun weighs, the more it recoils, and the harder it is to control, so a clever spiker actually increases the pull on his weapon when it's time to put the hammer down. The giant barrel barely moved as Sullivan pounded the remainder of the drum magazine into the swordsman. Each thirty-oh-six bullet hit with an impact sufficient to quarter an elk, but instead of tumbling through flesh, the bullets exploded into fragments against his body. The hallway was pummeled with noise. The air was thick with unburned powder and shining brass cases bounced along the floor. When the Lewis bolt finally fell on an empty chamber, the swordsman was still there, clothes tattered, but flesh unharmed, and his slow walk turned into a charge. The sword descended as Sullivan desperately used his power, hurling his attacker back. The swordsman fell a few feet, but instantly adjusted and drove himself back towards Sullivan in a leap. The big man shouted as the end of the blade flickered through his skin. Sullivan stumbled back, blood pouring down his bare chest. He spiked again, totally reversing gravity, and the swordsman fell toward the ceiling. Again his foe adjusted, twisted, and took the impact with his hands, rolling across the roof, getting closer. Sullivan cut the power, and the swordsman dropped, hitting the ground in a perfect crouch coat billowing around him, sword extended behind. He looked up and smiled. What are you? Sullivan gasped, reaching deep, gathering power. He had one last trick. I am Rokusaburo of the Iron Guard, herald of the Imperium, warrior of the Emperor of Nippon. Know that before you die, he said with pride. He rose and extended his sword aimed directly at Sullivan's heart. I represent the future. Not if we can help it. A gray shape appeared through the wall, colliding with the swordsman locking up on his extended arm. 
Both of them crashed into the wall, cracking through the boards. The swordsman roared, the gray shape was instantly flung off, and the German from the stolen dirigible landed at Sullivan's feet. Need a hand? the fade asked. Sullivan shrugged. I suppose. The swordsman came out of the wall swinging. The blade was insanely fast, and Sullivan was barely able to raise the Lewis to block. The German started pumping rounds from a pistol into the attacker, and Sullivan was rewarded with bits of bullet jacket hitting him for the effort as they ricocheted off the Jap's skin. Rokusoburo spun into the hall, and they had to leap back to avoid being eviscerated. The sword lanced forward, and Sullivan barely blocked it, the Lewis flying from his hands under the impact. The blade instantly returned, humming through the air, and the tip pierced his bicep. The steel came out in a splash of red that painted the wallpaper, and Rokusoburo stepped back triumphant as Sullivan crashed, bellowing into the wall. The sword flicked back to finish him, but the swordsman's head rocked as he was struck from behind, and the blade passed within a hair's width of Sullivan's throat. He jerked his eyes up to see a bespectacled man walking down the hallway, firing a handgun repeatedly into Rokusoburo's back. It was just as ineffective as before, but at least it was distracting. The swordsman turned toward the new threat. The fade came off the floor, leaping past Sullivan and kicked the Imperial in the back of the legs. The Japanese went to his knees, but simultaneously reversed his sword and drove it up, right through the German's guts. The fade was too quick with his power, and the silver blade erupted through nebulous gray smoke. The mass sidestepped, reformed into solid flesh and bone, and kicked Rokusoburo square in the skull. The swordsman's head snapped back hard, but then came right back wearing a vicious snarl, and the German had to dive away to avoid the sword. Apparently, hitting him did about as much good as shooting him. Sullivan pushed himself off the wall and stumbled forward, splattering blood in great pulsing gushes from his arm, but still he was calm, analytical, trying to find a way around Rokusoburo's power. Even while bleeding out, Sullivan was able to note that the Jap's clothes were shredded, but it was like his skin turned to hardened steel on impact. He had never heard of the power of indestructibility before, but like any other power, it had to have limits. It had to run out eventually or break when pushed too far. Sullivan cleared his head, using his power to see the world as it really was, mass, density, and force. He could feel the power of his opponent, and he understood then what was happening. The Jap was like a reverse fade. Instead of making himself hazy until his body could pass through solid things, this one was increasing it until nothing could pass through. It was taking a staggering amount of energy. It was time for Sullivan to play his final hand. He needed to get real close for this to work. He was too big and slow to get past that three-foot razor blade without losing a limb. He needed a distraction. The man in glasses had reloaded his pistol and started shooting again, diverting Rokusoburo's attention long enough for Sullivan to hiss. Fritz, take the sword again, then get back. The German nodded quickly and moved in. The fade charged in one way, going gray, just as Rokusoburo swung through him, and Sullivan dove straight at the swordsman, superbly trained. The sword was already coming back around in a killing arc. They collided. 
Sullivan took every bit of power he had and let it all go at once, channeling it through his body, increasing gravity's strength, bellowing at the world to pull them down under the strength of fifty Earths. The swordsman gasped as the magnificent force crushed down on him. He fired his own power, and Sullivan could feel his own hammering like bombs against a bunker as the two magical forces slammed together. The floor beneath splintered and exploded, and the two dropped through, hitting the next floor down without even slowing, blowing through landing after landing ten stories in an ever-quickening cascade, until they crashed through a series of pipes and into the concrete of the foundation. Still Rokusaburo's power held, invulnerable, struggling, taking the impossible force. The foundations cracked and turned to powder under the pressure, but Sullivan kept pushing. The walls bent. The lights crackled and died. Sullivan could feel something burning beneath the swordsman's clothing, some other alien source of power that he was drawing upon to sustain his invulnerability. Then finally, inexorably, he felt his enemy weaken. Rokusaburo screamed in frustration. His power flickered like a flame deprived of oxygen, and then it was extinguished. The full impact of Sullivan's power hit him then, and Rokusaburo was just gone, replaced by a sudden, pressurized red mist that instantly coated the entire basement. Sullivan lay there for a moment as the world returned to normal. It took a few seconds before he could breathe again. He slowly pulled himself out of the dripping crater and spit a mouthful of blood that he was relatively certain was his own. His power was gone. He'd never felt so tired. Gradually realizing that he was bleeding, he mashed one big hand against his torn arm, but the blood just leaked between his fingers. The Japanese sword was twisted like a pretzel and embedded in the floor. The damaged boiler was hissing and screaming. It hurt to turn his head, and he was certainly no boiler mechanic, but all those gauges breaking and steam shooting out like that had to be a bad thing. A gray shape fell through the broken ceiling, and the fade landed softly next to the indentation. He took in the majestic mess in awe, then looked down at his shoes in disgust and kicked away something that had probably been one of Rokusaburo's more elastic organs. He paused long enough to pick up a piece of the broken sword. Souvenir, he explained with a smile, then noticed the hissing boiler. Come, my large friend, I believe this building is going to fall down on our heads very soon. Sullivan didn't know if he could trust the German, but he was too tired to argue. That was part 12 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, and thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a rage of Rathorns in Stampede, kicking up clouds of gold dust and the shed fingernails and toenails of old gods gone to seed as they pull along a woven banner displaying elaborated thanks to P.C. Hodgel, author of new Kinserath novel, The Sea of Time. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 